Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology uh, podcast, and we are still in our series, Myth is America. My name's Jared. I'm Nick. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the uh, colonization of New England. Uh, we've already talked about the colonization of Virginia and what ended up transpiring with plantation society, at least early on regarding indentured servitude, the birth of uh, uh, race classification, uh, those types of things. And then last episode, we talked more specifically about the ideology that eventually crosses uh, the pond, so to speak, the idea of the Protestant work ethic and uh, and later on the spirit of, of capitalism that was instilled in these fondly remembered uh, people known as the pilgrims, and eventually later on just regular old Pur- uh, Puritans and the Massachusetts Bay Company, which we'll talk about super briefly uh, in this episode. But the goal of this episode is to basically try and synthesize the ideological imperative that Nick outlined for us in the last episode, i.e., again, that Protestant work ethic, this need uh, to work hard to prove that you are elect, uh, and then to reveal that notion of being elect through material rewards, so to speak. I, I oversimplified it, but if you want great detail, Nick provided that in the prior episode. Um, and how that eventually leads to this notion of exceptionalism, which is what we're going to be kind of focusing on today. Um, so let's just dig right in. Uh, we already know that the pilgrims are religious separatists that are seeking opportunity outside of Europe. And as we discussed last, last episode, it wasn't necessarily that they, you know, it would be, uh, disingenuous for me to say that they weren't oppressed, but that at least some of that oppression was brought on or self-inflicted because of the fact that they were separatists, because of their beliefs in being elect, because of their constant judgment uh, of all of those other Christian sects around them. Like I said, when when you're asked not to hang out in Amsterdam, one of the more accepting places of the 15th, 16th, and 17th century, you're doing something wrong. Uh, again, that was a, that, that, that's a town that had accepted countless groups of people. The, the Jews during the Inquisition, for example, would be an easy one off the top of my head. I think we talked about it in the last episode. So yes, there was some persecution, but that's because these this group of people, these Puritans, again, following the, 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 the teachings of John Calvin, were very difficult to deal with. Um, and, and it's that simple. So they will seek new opportunity. They will cross the pond seeking religious freedom, so to speak. And then, of course, the irony is that they will create one of the uh, least religiously free entities uh, at the time. And again, an easy example, which we're not going to be talking about in this episode or maybe even a future episode because it's kind of old hat. But to give you an example of how religiously intolerant it was, if you happen to be a woman later on dancing in the woods, uh, you are not practicing, of course, the way you're supposed to. You'd be accused of being a witch, and we all know how that went in Salem, Massachusetts. That's an easy example just off the top of my head to kind of contextualize uh, for you listeners what I'm talking about when I say not very religiously free. Again, super easy example. We probably won't do an episode on it because, again, it's been – that one's – we're oversaturated with that example. you got plays. you got movies, all kinds of stuff. But, but it gives you an idea. Anyway, they get on board, of course, a boat, which is now, of course, legion in American history. It is the Mayflower, and uh, they eventually do uh, attempt to get across uh, the Atlantic, and it is a tenuous journey. It's it's not necessarily, again, as impressive as we talked about in an earlier episode of the Pacific Wayfarers, but it's it's a tenuous journey. They're not necessarily looking to join what is already going on. Virginia is already established. It's still struggling by the time the, the, the pilgrims take off, but, but it is established and they are doing their own thing down there under the Virginia company and eventually the Royal Tar- Charter under, under King James, as we've already talked about in one of the prior episodes. So they're looking for a different place to settle because again, they are religious separatists. 
They're also going to be limited in how far north they can go because there has already been um, exploratory measures um, and establishment of forts, especially for trade by the French, the Dutch. Uh, to the best of my recollection, the Swedes have also uh, made some inroads there. Obviously, they don't they don't stick around as, as long as the French or the Dutch. But there is already uh, European colonial practices uh, in what we would know of uh, now as Canada. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because when the pilgrims show up, they are, and some would argue God showed them favor, they are given a, a very interesting example. Basically, when they show up and actually do finally land on uh, in Plymouth, the advantage they're given is that a massive uh, epidemic had already taken place and wiped out a good portion of the First Nations that had lived specifically where they land, better known as the Wampanoag uh, Confederation. The reason I'm emphasizing that is it's likely that that epidemic uh, that struck in New England was a byproduct of the other European uh, colonial projects taking place in and around the region. So basically, it does set the pilgrims up with an advantage. But again, this idea of feeling like they are elect is going to be important here because they would argue um, when they enter into some of these villages, again, specifically uh, uh, in what would become Plymouth, they're going to see uh, deserted villages. They're going to see um, they're going to see graves. They're going to see bodies. They're going to see a suffering. And when they do see people, they're going to see a people that are suffering a little bit. When you synthesize that with the idea that they feel special, that they are God's chosen, that they are the elect, they are going to more or less in their own minds they are going to that's going to be framed as this is God more or less paving the way for His chosen people. That these people that had lived in this region, or at least some of them, um, suffered because God is making way for a quote unquote better group of people or better civilization. And 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 that kind of reminds me of a of a film link we're going to put in the. Uh, the uh the the description uh one of the films we usually show in classes is called after the mayflower it is a great series um from uh, pbs called it's in we shall remain and uh and we'll put the link in there anyway let's keep moving actually before we keep moving nick what are your thoughts on this before we even like get started into what actually happens when they when they when they hit the ground and after they realize that god has quote unquote paved the way by causing all of this death and pestilence uh to the people that have already lived there and have lived there for centuries um yeah i don't know if i have really anything significant to add at this point i do think it's just funny that god seems to always shine the light and pave the way through death and destruction but that's a whole other topic so that is a whole other topic. Um, okay, well, we'll keep moving then. So here's the thing. When they land, and, and we've got some very famous actors here that, that some people may be familiar with. Uh, uh, we have Edward Winslow, and we have Miles Standish, a couple of, of very popular uh, figures in, in American history. Um, well, maybe less so now. I guess they don't they don't compete with the later architects of the country. But those that know a little history know that these are important actors for this first uh, group of English explorers in New England. English explorers, I should say colonists. Now, here's a key component that does for the survivors of the uh, Wampanoag uh, Confederacy. One of the things that kind of um, disarms them a little bit is the fact that this group of pilgrims was a little different than other Europeans they had either seen or heard about in that they had also brought uh, some women and children, which is important because it shows a couple of things. First and foremost, we know why they, they brought women and children. They're not ever going to leave. They're going to stay. That their their goal is a colonial project to actually recreate their perfect English pure society 
across the Atlantic. Whereas perhaps in regards to French or Dutch traders, it seemed like it was a little little less permanent because it was mostly men um, that would be representing the will of their group of people, in this case France or Dutch or, or the Dutch, to set up trade networks and basically acquire things like furs um, or other unique items that they could get in North America in exchange for the unique items they were bringing uh, from Europe, steel, weapons, etc. I'm emphasizing this a little bit because it is disarming. It will kind of, mm, let's see, it'll make it less clear what the Puritans are, or the Pilgrims are about when they seek to establish uh, themselves in Plymouth. The problem is that these even though they bring all of these different groups of or these different pe- uh, parts of their demographic, they don't know how to survive in New England. And we know that New England is a much harsher environment than maybe English settlers uh, had to deal with in Virginia. Not a lot harsher, but a harsher enough. And we know that the, the, the idea of then eventually founding economic imperative based on cash crops is going to be not quite as easy as, as well because, again, they're going to be able to grow things that they can eat, but they're not quite as profitable as things like tobacco. Um, or indigo or sugar or way later on down the line cotton as you can get in the south. Uh, I emphasize that because this group of people will struggle greatly to establish themselves when they show up. They, I mean, mass amounts of them will die. Up to half will die over the course of the first winter between the journey and the winter. And their survivors of the Wampanoag will be observing this group of people struggling. And they will do a little bit of self-reflection. They know that this group of people has some things that they might find desirable. They also know that they have just dealt with a important epidemic that has uh, just wrought so much havoc and really lowered their numbers. So they're going to consider that maybe they can bring this new group of people into their fold. Again, it sounds very familiar to what we talked about in a prior episode with Powhatan and Pocahontas and so on and so forth. It's not necessarily that they're seeking to create what we in Western civilization would call like a peace treaty. This is basically bringing people into like the family or the clan or the national or the, the tribal circle that they will work together. Like they, there is this idea of reciprocity that is rich within uh, indigenous and first nation history. And they naturally would want to assume other cultures have something similar that they're not necessarily the, they don't, they don't have this exceptionalist mindset. Um, and uh, they don't necessarily understand this idea of religious separatism. Um, those are things that they, they don't necessarily consider when they see this group of people basically starving to death um, or freezing to death. So long story short, um, the, 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 the primary sachem, i.e. representative of the popular will of the people, his name is Massasoit or Massasoit. I've heard it pronounced both ways. But he decides he makes a choice and gets, of course, buy-in from all of his uh, – both the matrons that would remain in the village and his uh, warriors slash traders or representatives or fellow sachems to basically help out these these pilgrims. And so they uh, they have the advantage of also having a translator already. Squanto had been uh, basically taken prisoner and taken back to Europe uh, years before by some European uh, traders and had learned enough European custom and enough English that he could act as a go-between. So when he escaped, he made his way back, uh, back to New England and ended up uh, working uh, with the Wampanoag. I've also heard accounts where he was actually kind of enslaved by the Wampanoag but that uh, slavery was not necessarily prominent, um, especially along the Atlantic seaboard among First Nations, um, or at least not what we would consider slavery, which, of course, we'll be talking heavily about in this series moving forward. But but yes, yeah, Squanto was able to act as a translator. And eventually, they decide to uh, uh, create a 
an arrangement in which Massasoit and the Wampanoag will teach uh, the pilgrims how to plant corn, what they can grow there, teach them how to sur- basically survive in New England, and even give them, in a, in, in a first agreement here, even give them what Plymouth, basically giving them the land grant for Plymouth, uh, obviously via handshake, uh, via uh, verbal uh, exchange, and this is where we have to say that the relationship will slowly begin – this is the onset of when the relationship will slowly begin to change because once the Puritans take what they've learned or the pilgrims take what they've learned from Massasoit over the next coming months, um, they, began, they begin to put down roots much more established roots. But these roots are tentative. They enjoy the fact that the Native Americans, in this case the Wampanoag, have helped them learn how to survive and basically kept them from, from dying out. But again, based on their religious exceptionalism, they are a little hesitant to interact heavily with them. And of course, the indigenous people will then begin to become a little bit more hesitant themselves because they're like, hey, we brought you into our clan. We kept you from dying. What's going on here? Why this separatism? Why this? Why are you so tentative in your dealings with us? And the governor at the time, John Carver, kind of authorized this, and he then gave his second in command, Edward Winslow, basically, he would be the foreign diplomat for him. And so it was Edward Winslow that was basically able to keep this relationship with Massasoit and his people together while they were both still alive. Um, by constantly going back and forth, engaging in gift giving, which is important. Again, reciprocity. Even when Massasoit gets sick for a little bit, it's Edward Winslow that comes to his bedside and tries to help him out. It doesn't necessarily work, but the fact that he went out of his way to come make sure Massasoit was going to recover, those were the types of things where these two individuals were building a huge bond. The reason I like to focus on those stories, and again, if you want to see like a great film rendition of it, check out the, the, the After the Mayflower episode. But the reason I like to focus on that is it shows that there was an opportunity here with two individuals from two different cultures that we know eventually are going to come into conflict with each other, but there was an opportunity here for these these two groups of people to work together. Now, they end up it end up it end up ends up going very poorly for the First Nations right after this. But before before we talk about this, I want Nick's uh, uh, basically his opinion. Like, why do you think that Edward Winslow and Massasoit's personal relationship did not proliferate through each of the different cultures um, and different individuals within those cultures. I think we actually see this a lot throughout history where on an individual basis, people are very capable of seeing the humanity within one another and relating to one another, even when their societies are vastly different. But I think when two very different ideological cultures clash with one another it requires much more than just two individuals or a handful of individuals and so on being able to see eye to eye in order to reconcile those differences and very clearly here we have a a stark contrast in ideology yeah and that's our contrast you can maybe see in some of our other videos but i mean some examples especially along the atlantic seaboard is most indigenous societies along the atlantic seaboard uh were matrilineal in other words they were not patriarchal so even though massasoit can act as like a leader because he has the consensus of the group he's not like a powerful 
coercive leader. He's not like a, a European king. He's, he's, he only has that power because he has the consensus of all of the people and heavily informed by matrons. Everything of consequence follows down a matrilineal line. Again, we have a quick little video on that if you explore our channel a little bit on what matrilinealism is. We also have this idea that this, that basically we also call it kind of like a natural democracy has formed along the Atlantic seaboard among, among many of these first nations where it requires uh, agreement of basically, or at least a unanimous, if not majority agreement to make any major choices like land sessions or trade arrangements or things along those lines, which again, for Europeans did not, that, that, that just did not register. These ideas of democratic ways of doing things were not something they were familiar with at the time or even believed in, because again, at the time, they are all coming from monarchies. England may have been dabbling with constitutional monarchy, but still, the king had a lot more power at that time than, of course, the Queen of England does now, um, because it had not gotten that far. It hadn't evolved enough. So the idea there, and those are just political ideologies that we see like this, this clash of culture. There's a whole host of other things. Again, things like gift giving and reciprocity, respecting the environment around you, making sure it's sustainable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Grow, not just growing for growth's sake. Um, those are things that, that there would be ideological clashes on. Anyway. The reason I emphasize this is because over the coming like decades, these clashes are going to become more and more paramount. For everything the First Nations do, the English seem more and more insatiable. It is always this ideology of more, 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 and more. How does the Protestant work ethic feed into this idea of basically being insatiable, especially when we get to the formalized Massachusetts Bay Company showing up with like 10, 20,000, and it, they not all at once, they just flood in. They're going to need more land. They're going to want more resources. Why don't they just stop? Why don't they ever feel satisfied? Because like we talked about in the last episode, this is a like a stark contrast from the indigenous idea and the spirit of sustainability and merely taking from the earth what you need to survive and so on. The Protestant work ethic, they're not seeking these things for consumption. They're seeking more constantly because it's it's status. It's a sign to them of their favor in God's eyes, which can never be satisfied. There's yeah. no end to that. And yeah. that's that's why we like to emphasize this in this this episode. That's why we're trying to emphasize this in this episode. This is something that is still real today, right? We lack the ability to think sustainably. And and I don't care how many like institutions, corporations, universities, whatever, create like sustainability departments or whatever to try and help the environment. It's all nonsense. The as 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 much as we continue to operate in these ideologies and specifically a very the, the economic system we choose to use, we will never achieve that because we've never actually challenged the ideological imperative. I'm not saying don't recycle or don't whatever, pick up trash outside. Those are all really nice things to do. But if we think driving a Prius is really going to turn this fucking thing around, we have, there's so much more for us to, to learn here. It's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, like that, that wasn't probably an unnecessary tangent, but I get kind of fired up when we talk about it. Anyway, back to the story here. This, these ideas of sustainability, something that the uh, Puritans just, they don't even get. More and more of them, like I said, 10 to 20,000 over the coming years end up rolling in, and it becomes a little bit more formalized under the Massachusetts Bay Charter. Again, it is a company. They are here. We momentarily have a brief change in governorship with William Bradford. I'm not going to spend, you know what, I'm not even going to spend any time on William Bradford. Well, you can look up William Bradford. He's pretty famous. He did some interesting things. Um... But I want to focus on this, the, basically the land seizures that began to take place. Um, and one of the ma major things that takes place is, is in the 1620s, 
in this this need for more and this more land, we get this uh, basically preemptive strike that the Puritans, again, they are no longer dependent upon the Native Americans because they've figured out how to survive and they are becoming profitable. I suppose I should add in they became very profitable and we do get this in William Bradford's writings, not on what would become later their profit margins, which are lumber, fishing, shipbuilding, basically mercantilism, but originally it was on the corn that the Wampanoag taught them how to grow, which is a, it's just it's a ridiculous irony. They're able to eventually pay off some of their debts and make new arrangements with creditors. Um, and again, William Bradford writes ad nauseum about, about how he was able to accomplish this. Are they like shipping it back to... Well, yeah, because it's a, I mean, it's a good food, it's a good food staple. We all know corn is a good food staple. I don't know, um, never mind. I was going to say, I don't know where it ranks in, in comparison to another staple like a, a rice, but it's definitely up there as far as like this time, 17th century ways people are able to sustain themselves and get enough calories. Corn is, is definitely at the top of the list. And we know that it's still at the top of the list uh, to this day. So, so it becomes somewhat profitable again, not profitable on the level of what's going on in Virginia eventually with tobacco, but a profitable enough to where they are at least able to attract more and more colonists with a desire to come here and make their own way um, in quote-unquote, America. Anyway, this need to become profitable, again, using land, leads to more conflict with indigenous peoples, just like we talked about in Virginia. But these preemptive strikes, for example, they eventually nearly wipe out the entire Massachusetts nation. Um, and they bring back trophies and they, like heads, literally heads and body parts and put them on display as like warnings to other First Nations in New England. We have to keep in mind, like this idea that the Atlantic seaboard only had a couple of sporadic First Nations, like, no, it is packed. It is packed with human beings. This idea that there were only a couple of, you know, like thousands, maybe even only two million that we see in history books, Native Americans on the entire continent is absolute bullshit. And it makes us, it's, we only, we only tell that to ourselves to make ourselves feel better about the the cleansing campaign that's basically starting with what we're talking about right here. Again, this is a completely unfounded preemptive strike that that basically uh, kills countless people. I don't even know if we have a demographic, uh, how many people died in this preemptive strike against the Massachusetts. It scares enough of the First Nations that they begin to capitulate things. They basically give over some land because they're fearful. Their ways of waging war were never as violent as what they had just witnessed. Yes, there was violence. Yes, there was conflict. I do not want to paint North America before Europeans showed up as like rainbows and unicorns. But one of the ways that they would engage in war, the goal in war was not to actually kill as many of the opposition as possible. It was to capture as many and, again, bring them into your fold. Um, through forced assimilation, that is real, so it's not necessarily like the most peaceful thing, but the goal was not to kill. Um, the goal was to capture. Um, now, casualties would happen naturally, but um, this idea of basically total war and total elimination of your enemy that Europeans brought over, that was something that indigenous people just couldn't even fathom, could not even understand. So even when they do fight wars, they're fighting two different kinds of war. And indigenous people are going to have to become very reactive really quickly. They're going to have to adopt things like, again, guns, which would never have been necessary prior to European types of war. It's not... It's not like an, even in a development or innovation or intelligence thing, as many Europeans like to talk about. You could have given most First Nations until the end of time to invent the gun, and they never would have because they needed they never needed anything that effective at killing human beings. All the weapons they had were more than adequate for things like hunting or conflict. The gun would never have nef – it was not going to be needed because of the ideological imperative of most of the First Nations. And I think that's lost on a lot of people. It's not like, again, a, a lack of innovation. 
it was just never going to be necessary based on what they chose to value. What do you I think mean, of I that? Think this, yeah. When you think of like the materialist development of history, it makes sense that like the things that we produce are a result of our economic systems and whatever the quote unquote mode of production. So like the indigenous peoples would have never invented a gun because materially they didn't need one. Like, would it have been more efficient to kill like the bison? Sure. But they didn't need that. They were fine. And they never needed to kill like thousands of bison yeah, exactly. as eventually, you know, asswipes like Buffalo Bill Cody would do later on. Um, that that would have been the dumbest thing you can do. But that goes back to the sustainability ideology. Um, and like you said, the weapons they had were more than adequate enough for the basic conflict they were having and so on. They didn't ever need to kill massive thousands and thousands of people right. at one time. That was never a thing. That was never. And, and yeah, you may end up losing a battle with another nation and end up as a tributary or something along those lines. Again, it's not completely peaceful. Not everybody's holding hands singing Kumbaya. But it was not systematic elimination of your enemy that the Europeans would bring over. That's very different. Um, anyway, this first real preemptive strike against the Massachusetts scares enough of the First Nations that first and foremost they decide they they better start learning how to adopt uh, European firearms and how to use them effectively, which they actually do super quickly, which is very interesting. And then, of course, uh, also uh, figure out how they cannot end up next on the list of these uh, expansionist Europeans. Um, and again, the Europeans feel justified in their elimination of their enemy because they are operating under the auspices that we are elect. We are the greatest. Um, we are doing God's work. In fact, um, let's talk about that real quickly. Uh, one of the uh, primary founding ideologies of the time comes from uh, John Winthrop, who eventually did become the governor of Massachusetts after the aforementioned uh, gentleman I've already mentioned. And uh, he gives an interesting, rousing sermon in 1630 called The City Upon the Hill. He does it uh, aboard the Arabella, which was a boat. He, of course, is, is uh, got the charter from the king. And he has investors, uh, which are important, just like we talked about with the Virginia Company. And he makes this very interesting assertion. Now, most people that have studied history, or at least American history, are aware of this sermon. But I kind of want to talk about it ideologically and make the connection to that idea of the Protestant work ethic. I'm not going to read the whole thing. In fact, I'm only going to read the most famous line. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in his work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed consumed out of the good land whither we are going what do you think about that i mean it's manufacturing exceptionalism no doubt i think that anytime we create an exceptionalism using the power of god claiming that you know we are better than everyone else because god has bestowed upon us this whatever status that you know pick your religion it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Anytime that you are doing something in the name of God, it emboldens people with all kinds of moral, ethical justifications that they would have never had before. Um, so I, I listen to that and, I mean, we know the outcome, obviously, so I can feel comfortable saying that it's super dangerous and we know that it that comes true. Yeah, I just found the figure here and, and as... Uh 
conflict, of course, rises between the First Nations because, again, everything they're giving willingly of the Euro- to the Europeans is never enough for the insatiable European appetites. And that reminds me of, of, of one of the quotes we read in, like, the first episode from Columbus and De Las Casas, where De Las Casas was critiquing the, the Spanish colonial uh, project. Well, it's the same here. Um, in less than a generation, we see that the Wampa or that the Europeans' population rose from around 300 to about 20,000. Um, and, of course, I'll cite We Shall Remain on that one, um, which is, again— Super good. Okay, so the reason I mentioned this rise in population is because then, of course, it creates much less dependency for the Europeans on the indigenous people. And during this time, over the coming decade and a half to two decades, they will begin to see the the Native Americans no longer as others, but an actual impediment to their expansive uh, uh, discourse, what they're hoping to accomplish. And so they will actually begin to look for reasons to basically force either tributes or land sessions or land dispossession against the various First Nations in the region. And again, it leads to conflict eventually, uh, and it's not even just conflict because of the uh, uh, First Nations, though also the English will be trying to compete with other European entities, which leads to conflict. And if indigenous people are stuck in the middle, they're then forced to choose between the lesser of evils. Now, at this time, mo- for most First Nations, the most evil would be, of course, the British colonizers in comparison to the French or the Dutch. Um, that might be a different episode. I haven't decided yet. But but why the English colonial project was just so much more disgusting than the French or the Dutch, which is saying something because the French and the Dutch are no like peaches themselves. But like the fact that, again, we see this over and over again, when you're forced to choose in the, as a first nation between the lesser of two, two evils, the English almost never went out. And then of course, it'll get to the point where the English actually do eventually win out when Native Americans are forced to choose between the English and Americans, which shows how far gone Americans are by the time we get to that part. But that, those are for future episodes. Anyway, back to the story here. It leads to conflict and eventually this competition with other Europeans creates another war, war against the Narragansett. And again, the Narragansett stood really no chance for, with these, this, this united English front with their, uh, basically their, their superior technology and of course disease wreaking havoc throughout the colonies. And, uh, and the Narragansett are again more or less eliminated. Um, they stood in, in, in the way of, uh, of Massachusetts gaining a basically access to the Connecticut River. And so they were in the way, they had to go. It's also at this time we see a generational change. Um, it's basically been a single generation in the time I've just kind of uh, explained. And Massasoit, um, who had been working tirelessly to maintain this relationship between the Wampanoag and the growing English settlements, eventually passes away. As does his best friend. I don't want to say his best friend, but his best friend on the European side, Edward Winslow. And again, these two men had the opportunity to just be this great story. And I guess they were this great story of these two people from different cultures basically keeping the peace. But eventually when they both die, the peace is going to go with them. And that's the problem. And now that I bring that up, that would be such a better story than lying about what happened with Pocahontas and John Smith. Because this one actually really happened. This was a real relationship between an English settler and a uh, a Wampanoag Sachem that actually was a good relationship. We could have turned this into like a cool story. We didn't. We chose to make one up about uh, romance between a, a grown man and a, and a, and a, and a preteen, um, which is interesting. Anyway, 
That says a lot about America, right? Yeah, there. that really does. <laughs> I mean, it really does. Uh, and there are other other stories where other settlers uh, uh, actually were did create these bonds with First Nations. Roger Williams would be another example. Why have we not heard the story of Roger Williams and what he was able to do? Well, you know, he eventually is actually chased out of Massachusetts for heresy. Uh, if we have any listeners along the East Coast, you'll know he becomes the founder of uh, the smallest colony. Uh, and to this day, I think the smallest state, I don't know what's the whatever compared to Hawaii, but Rhode Island. Anyway, that's Roger Williams in a nutshell. Uh, just kidding. There's much more, but we're not doing an episode on him. Anyway, when these two men eventually die, the natural line of succession, at least in European society, passes down to be a representative. The natural line of succession goes to Edward's kid, Josiah, who's an awful little human being. Um, just just a, a piece of excrement. It's not as clear-cut in Wampanoag society uh, because, again, these matrilineal lines do complicate things in comparison to what Europeans are used to, to, to thinking about. Yet it still works out that Massasoit's son, um, because of who he marries— does become next in line to become an important sachem. And his name is Metacom, um, or he actually also has a European name, Philip. And he becomes uh, this representative for the relationship between the Wampanoag and the English settlers. We know that he was an individual that had basically grown up where this relationship already exists. So the Europeans are not new or novel to him. And the same could be said about Josiah Winslow. The Native Americans are not new. He doesn't need them. In fact, he sees them as an impediment, whereas Edward remembers, his dad Edward would have remembered the day where they basically saved their asses. Josiah has no concept of that, no matter what his dad has told him. And so these two uh, young men are basically going to come into conflict. They're not curious about each other. And this is going to be important. Josiah Winslow is eventually going to try and goad Philip into conflict. Now, Philip was basically, he was tired. He was tired of land sessions. He was tired of paying these tributes. He was tired of it, of, of giving everything that the Wampanoag possibly could without basically killing themselves to the English, never being enough for the insatiable appetites of the English. And so he begins to plan um, a, a, rebe a rebellion. And Josiah Winslow eventually is able to course him into coming uh, back to town, signing a confession that this is what he was planning and that he's armed. He ha they have to give up their weapons. But again, clandestine, secretly, clandestinely, he's able to, after signing this confession, eventually acquire more weapons, um, create various alliances with other First Nations, and launch uh, one of the more famous uh, wars in early American history, even though America's not America yet. It is King Philip's War. And again, I think it is, it's kind of a landmark event where basically Philip, his warriors, and all of their allies, again, numerous different First Nations, I can't even name them all, basically start to clean house, uh, more or less attempting to basically sweep the English into the ocean. And they're winning. They are winning, even with maybe uh, uh, less of a technological advantage, although by this time they're all familiar with, with guns and know how to, of course. In fact, actually, their use of guns via uh, what we would now call guerrilla warfare was actually more effective than what uh, the English were able to – what the English were, were doing to try and prevent this rebellion. I anyway. always think it's funny. Like we talked about the development of technology and stuff. I think it's funny like this European exceptionalism of like we had guns so we're so much better than you. But like within a generation – the indigenous peoples were whooping their asses with their own guns. They were. And here's here's the thing. This is the most frustrating thing for me as a historian who obviously, based on the series that you all are listening to, has a huge bone to pick with European ideologies during this period of time, 
is uh, it, it it didn't have to end the way it did. They King Philip and his and his warriors and their allies were winning until one of the First Nations flips and actually helps the English, and that is. Uh, again, it's frustrating. It is a frustrating thing to consider. Um, it is, and it, and even more frustrating is it comes from arguably my favorite group of First Nations to study, the Iroquois League of Peace and Power. Now, not all of those uh, nations flipped, specifically the most Eastern uh, nation known as the Mohawk. They flipped, and they were Anglophiles. Um, for our listeners out there that want to know a little bit more about why they're, uh, they are my favorite, uh, Daniel Richter has a wonderful book that I assign in classes called The Ordeal of the Longhouse that is very deep on the relationships that the various Iroquois nations formed, uh, with Europeans and how they evolved and transformed over time. Anyway, that's where I get some of this content from. But, uh, but back to the story. By the time we get here, the Mohawk were getting what they wanted from the English materially and had created this relationship. And the English are basically able to bribe them into, into basically joining their side. And it is the Mohawk that, uh, that perform a secret raid against basically King Philip's new confederacy, or I shouldn't call him king, but that's what the Europeans called him, King Philip, against Philip's confederacy that he had formed, wiping out hundreds of his warriors and basically dooming the rebellion. And again, it was not the Europeans. Europeans that decided the battle, it was the Mohawk and their raid against Philip's warriors. So basically they operated as mercenaries. And, you know, if with the luxury of hindsight, I'm not sure the Mohawk would have made that choice because eventually it didn't happen immediately. But a century or so later, what, what they experienced, what they did, they begin to experience themselves. Right. And that's, that's, that's the issue here. Um, Again, I don't want to speak for, for any members of a, of a First Nation. I'm speaking strictly as a historian. It has to be something that many people uh, still consider. Uh, this idea of Europeans' ability to basically co-opt rival nations uh, to do the fighting for them. And that wouldn't be unique by the uh, uh, for the English. Going all the way back to like rewinding to Cortez, he was able to do it to help topple the uh, the Aztec Empire. So it's it's not necessarily novel. Some would argue it's shrewd. Some would argue to the victor go the spoils. But this type of political manipulation is wildly problematic on, on multiple levels. And it's something that we also still carry on with to this day uh, in, in, in what became the United States. Anyway, that was really the death blow for this this rebellion that had an opportunity to basically stop the New England settlements uh, in their tracks. And uh, and eventually it fails because of the Mohawk. King Philip would eventually be be found, um, uh, honestly, by what is called a, a praying Indian. Have you ever heard of that term, the praying Indian? I, I don't know if I should do a brief uh, – yeah, I'll do it real briefly. Long story short, one of the things uh, that many Europeans sought was conversion of First Nations to Christianity. Now, we know that the Catholic nations like France and Spain were much more into that. Again, Spanish missions and French Jesuit missionaries were very – they really believed in what they were doing. I don't know that I can say the same thing for the Protestants and the Puritans, again, since they many of them consider themselves an exceptional group of people and were only converting basically to force assimilation on these group of people. They create these things called praying towns and force the, the people that eventually converted so they would stop being – I mean they converted basically on, on fear of death or starvation or elimination, right? Those types of things. They then force those Native Americans to basically cut their hair, stop speaking their language, um, basically give up everything that made them who they were, and uh, basically adopt a European lifestyle, European names. 
and that people that chose to live that way were called praying Indians. Um, and there are numerous uh, accounts on the things that they were forced to do. We don't necessarily have time to go into that now, or maybe, well, maybe we will in a future episode when we talk about how this also kind of sets a template for later on what would what would go on in the boarding schools uh, formed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs later on when the United States becomes established, this idea of forced assimilation and coercion. Anyway, that's what a praying Indian is. He eventually tracks down Philip, and Philip is killed, and uh, he is dismembered, and his parts are, are strewn about as basically like trophies, and, uh, and his head is removed. And his head is then placed on a stake, brought back to Plymouth, and a meal was held to give thanks for the killing of King Philip and the elimination of the Wampanoag and their allied resistance. So while the first Thanksgiving was a relatively cool one, which I guess I never used that term in this episode yet, but I think everybody knew what I was alluding to, Massasoit it, it, it was able to establish this, this relationship with Edward Winslow and John Carver, and they have this first celebration feast way back in the 1620s. Well, by the time we get here into the 1640s, 1650s, the second giving of thanks is for the systematic elimination of First Nations. And uh, we just leave that out. I mean, this is subjugated knowledge in the United States. Why? Why is it subjugated? Like, this is the the quote-unquote second Thanksgiving, and these assholes are sitting around a table and the head of another human being is in their town sitting on a stake i mean even the narrative of the first thanksgiving is so whitewashed it's ridiculous they forget about the whole side of the narrative that is like the natives helping the pilgrims to survive otherwise they literally were going to all die because they were worthless yeah so by the time we get one generation later i mean it's no it's no question why we don't tell that story. It doesn't, it's not a good look, obviously. But this is who we are. 100%. Again, like we keep yeah. saying in this episode, like this is who we are. The more we subjugate this knowledge, the more we're willing to turn a blind eye to similar types of events or related events or events that, that have the same ideological feel going on to this day. Yeah, we don't want to face who we this are. This exceptionalist mindset and that everybody outside of who we are is a savage, a whatever. Pick your pick your derogating term, term, an insurgent, whatever they are. Like, and we will make up any excuse to dehumanize that person. Um, like we don't want to be forced to look in the historical mirror because that will force us to look in the present mirror. That's, and that's we don't why want to this do matters. either of those things. Yeah, listeners, we're, we're not doing this just to like whatever challenge like history for challenging history's sake. We are creating this series so that we can actually learn lessons from the past by actually talking about the other side of history and then, of course, reflect upon, well, this is why we are the way we are today. That's why we're creating this series. Like Some of it may be interesting and cool facts, or we may read from an interesting primary source or two, but we're not doing that just for the sake of doing that. This knowledge actually matters, right? This is what informs our, our ethically constitutive story, which, again, we've already talked about. Uh, in this, these, these episodes. Because okay. People so easily try to like let the settlers of the past off the hook, right? Like, well, it was like disease and it, they didn't understand each other. Like they legit chopped his head off, put it on a pike and then had a meal. Like this is inexcusable. There is no letting anyone off a hook. And I this guess. is only after they preemptively killed Massachusetts, Narragansett, Pequot, right. like, Oh, I forgot the Pequot Wars. Well, we don't have time to rewind. But yes, this is after they've already engaged in this wildly violent expansionist uh, imperative. This is what they're doing. Um, You just subjugated the Pequot by not... uh, Oh, I did not want to do that. (laughs) 
All right. Um, we also have to understand that this Puritan, this Puritanical society, once it becomes quote unquote victorious, um, I mentioned how it had created a, a, a not very, well, one of the least religiously free societies of its era, which is a great irony because we're taught that one of the reasons they fled England and, and even the Netherlands is because they were seeking religious freedom. But then, of course, they begin to control the narrative by using, of course, uh, 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 religion. Basically, there was strict religious uh, observance required by all members of the society. And if you did not observe religion in the way that they saw fit – uh, you were ostracized, or in the case of, like I said, uh, young women in Salem, Massachusetts, eventually uh, murdered. Um, well, I think it's very important that we stress, like, using the term, like, they were seeking religious freedom, like you have been alluding to, makes it sound like that they were supporters of freedom of religion. But those are two very different things. Yes, they were seeking religious freedom for themselves and themselves alone. That's all they wanted. And that was they wanted freedom to practice their own religion and they wanted to make sure that everyone else also practiced their religion. Yeah, early in Massachusetts, church attendance for all town members was like whatever town you ended up finding yourself in um, was mandatory. Um, you had to create – there were these covenants that you formed, these basically these covenants that created a relationship between you and um, basically the religious leadership, which of course is tied, not ironically, to the economic leadership of these towns. Um, they even oftentimes forced these covenants upon First Nations. There was uh, the very famous thing a few times here. Why do you think they were so paranoid? What is it about their ideolo ideology that you talked about last episode that makes them paranoid? We know why they want to feel special and exceptional and elect. Why this paranoia? Well, I think it's very clear that if you're looking for every sign possible and you're looking to make yourself feel better by ensuring your membership in the elect, anyone that can jeopardize your status as elect is a problem. And just them merely existing can make you question your ideology, what you believe, how you behave, whether or not you view yourself as a member of elect, and so on, and that's a problem. It's also interesting during this time, this paranoia could also perhaps explain some of the alienation we still experience regarding the natural world. One of the things that was uh, more or less championed in New England during this period of time was that the village was the place for civilization, or the town was the place for civilization, and of course the church is, is, is the center of that town. And then anything outside in the forest, the wilderness, it needed to be either destroyed or eventually we know the forest themselves need to be cleared, we would argue, for, for feeding the uh, lumber industry or the shipbuilding industry, but also just clearing them because that's where evil exists. That's where the unknown exists. That's where that paranoia feels... Um, that, I mean, it's like the, the emphasis on paranoia. Why am I being reminded of an M. Night Shyamalan movie? What was that called again? The, the Village. Village? Oh my God, that movie sucked. Which, but by anyway. the way, this is the second time that's come up in our series now. It has it? Yeah. One of the shittiest movies of, of all time, and we've referenced it twice. I don't know if it's the shittiest movie of all time. But... I mean, it's got to be up. The Room. The Room is, isn't it? That's what people say. Whatever. We don't have time for this. The Room? Yeah. yeah, The Room. Whatever. Google it after this episode. All right. With the room. Brie Larson? No, I think it's called The Room. Like, there's this dude with, like, long hair. I forget his oh, name. Oh, oh. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. I got you. Yeah, All right, yeah. whatever. Back back to history. Um, 
No. Okay. So the forest is not just cleared because of its need in regards to the economy, which yes, I mean, lumber and shipbuilding and, and, and basically the merchant economy that would eventually form in New England did require vast amounts of lumber. True. Absolutely true. I just want to stop. So I Googled, you're right. The Room is the shittiest movie, which I watched, by the way, and it is shitty. <laughs> Room is the one with Brie Larson. So no, the. I don't even know the other one that you're talking about. I, nor do I know who Brie Larson is. Um, what? God damn it, Jared. Whatever. <laughs> she won know. a fucking Oscar for a room. And she's also... Whatever. I'll look her up later. Okay. <laughs> uh, what are we talking about? Oh, okay. Wilderness is scary. Clearing the forests is also then uh, basically ethically rationalized, not just economically, but ethically rationalized as deforestation um, would be making room for civilization where we feel safe. Now, of course, we know this is all the way back in the 1600s, but this is still a mentality we see today. If there is any sort of untapped wilderness, especially in the uh, uh, 18th, 19th, and 20th century, if there's any sort of untapped wilderness, it needs to be curated or manicured or wiped out. Terraformed. Terraformed so that it at least is aesthetically pleasing for us. What's going on there? Like, I mean, this is complete rationalization for ecological destruction just for the sake of ecological destruction. We have monuments called, like, dams and shit, and we go, like, visit them. Like, Hoover Dam, look at this amazing feat of engineering. Like, what are you talking about? You destroyed an entire ecosystem so that we could build, what, like, Las Vegas? Gross. Yeah, there's a a specific perversion of humanity that we feel this need like I, I i can't explain it but we feel this need to modify the natural environment even unnecessarily yeah it's just absurd like yeah. why like we and then we brag about it because it goes back to our exceptionalism look literally in the 20th century using vegas as an example or san diego as an example we made the desert bloom cool the colorado no longer makes it to the ocean anymore or i think maybe now it does after like the last year they tried to get it there but regardless yeah good job even on like a micro scale how sustainable is that even on a micro scale, it's absurd when you think about it. When, like people landscaping their yards and shit. It's such a waste of time. Yeah. It's absurd. I mean, we brought it up in class before. Still, yeah. I, I believe. Somebody could correct me in the comments if they so choose. But but I believe the top growing crop in the United States right now is still sod. Like mm-hmm. grass. Mm-hmm. Like not something we like eat or consume. It's just something that is aesthetically pleasing. And like I, I see numerous assholes out like every Saturday or Sunday making sure it's like all perfectly manicured. And like what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your yeah. life? Uh, we do an entire series. <laughs> Time, on, energy, like, resources, water. Yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway. Mm-hmm. All right. Although you make me – you bring up a good point t- this entire discussion. The, that article that I think you read, I definitely read. It's titled – now I don't remember the title. I think it's like The Invention of American Tradition or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah I yeah, think yeah. we should do an entire episode just on that article. It'll be a short one, 30 minutes or something, because that's exactly the whole article. Yeah, I have this. it. I've used it, yeah. although the author's name is escaping me right this second yeah, I can't for remember reasons. Either, I mean, I guess I could Google it real fast. I'll post it in the show notes, but I wonder if we should just do a whole short episode just on that article because it's so good and goes into all of this stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that paranoia leads to numerous issues. The, the paranoia leads to, of course, like I said, wars against the First Nations that we've already talked most of the episode about. It leads to ecological degradation. It leads to, of course, overt control of each and every uh, citizen within society, uh, citing, of course, forced, forced uh, covenants, forced uh, church attendance, those types of things. Um, there would be some minor changes briefly between 1649 and 1660, when Oliver Cromwell successfully does overthrow and executes uh, King Charles I of England, 
So for these 11 years, more or less, England is Puritan run. I emphasize that because uh, that during those 11 years, basically, uh, immigration uh, slows down and there are less Puritans coming into New England, which is going to slow the spread of this ideology. I would argue it's one of the key moments that keeps the ideology from basically proliferating, maybe even on down to Virginia. Who knows? Who knows what would have happened? But yes, less colonists come, there are less goods, and there is rampant inflation that also takes place uh, during this decade. Uh, basically, the colonies react by overt domination of the environments. Um, and of course, that leads to mass deforestation for lumber. And then, of course, overfishing also takes place because fishing becomes one of the more pro- predominant ways of making a living in New England, naturally so. I mean, wonderful harbors up there. Now, um, these new exports would eventually challenge uh, the major export that, uh, that, that predated them in New England, pelts. And again, we know that it was the French that really focused heavily on the furs, but the English were no stranger to trying to acquire furs. I, I, they Furs were wildly profitable for all Europeans. Um, and eventually, it's during this decade that slowly but surely pelts begin to lose their luster because they uh, people desire more wood, they desire more fish, but it's also, for the obvious reason, what happens to the pelts after decades of European insatiable appetites? The beaver. The beaver are gone, which leads to a whole series of other inconsequential, not not in very consequential events. It leads to something called the Beaver Wars, which are wars fought specifically through First Nations because the First Nations that manage not to be eliminated yet, like the Iroquois League of Peace and Power, um, like the Huron, like the Ottawa, they eventually would begin to compete for furs to give to the Europeans to get the goods they would eventually need to fight the Europeans. So it's this like vicious like cycle of violence that has started because of this commodity, these pelts. Um, so even, even when the Europeans, we could argue, are not intentionally causing conflict, they're causing conflict just because of the way they live their lives. This is wildly important for this series because we still do the same shit now. Our insatiable appetites to consume are leading to conflicts that we're not even directly involved in. Right? I mean, we know this. I can cite examples from ivory to diamonds to palm oil to like, this is, this is us. This is who we are. Just by living the way we do, we're destroying cultures. We're destroying civilizations. What do you think? And the environment. Am I out of line? Obviously not. That's like the least controversial thing I think either of us have ever said. Like, I don't, yeah. I also want to stress like the seeking of profitability is what's hugely problematic. Literally, if the Puritans just wanted to come here to escape persecution and live a sustainable lifestyle on the continent, that would have been done easily with the help of the natives. Done. No problem. That would have been fine. It's because they're seeking profit. It's because they're in debt. It's because they have come here to eke out, to try to have livings here above and beyond just survival. That's what's creating the massive amount of ecological, ideological and so on, problems that are happening. Yeah, these are all key key. Components. Like you're talking about overfishing yeah. because that's a way to eke out a living. Well, if they were just fishing to survive, that would be no problem. Absolutely. There's plenty of fish for everyone to survive. To eat. Yes. But they need to sell them. They need exactly. to sell them back to their investors back in London and then, of course, then spread them around to the other English colonies where they're doing awful things around the world uh, to indigenous people everywhere. Um, anyway, okay. Um. We also know that New Englanders during this period of time, during this like gap in immigration from, um, from the Puritans, basically they are breeding like bunnies, um, because that, that's their labor force. Let me be blunt. Like these small, like if you happen to have like a nice small farm that grows corn or whatever, you're just trying to find a, 
Um, I almost said sustainable. Um, but if you're just trying to feed yourselves, like your, your labor force is going to be your kids. So they have large families. Um, I emphasize this because with a little bit less of this, like religious zealotry crossing the Atlantic at this moment in time and a growth in population, the newer generations begin to quote unquote, half-ass their Christianity a little bit. And there's no choice because there's, there's more and more of them. Um, they're kind of called, they say they're Christian, but they stop like necessarily performing this idea of good works for merely being elect, those types of things. It's called horseshit. Christianity, where they will be Christian by name and still feel exceptional, but begin to not necessarily perform good works and labor just for the sake of good works and labor, but because that's what they have been socialized into doing and they are beginning to benefit in a different way without being beholden to clergy or those other members of society. So what is this called? Horseshed? Yeah. Like horseshed Christianity. I've like, never heard that before in my life. Somewhere. So like when the church sermon's going on, they're all like hanging out in the, in the, in the horseshed, maybe smoking cigarettes or something like that. <laughs> well, no, I'm not even joking. Like, cause tobacco was coming up yeah. from, from Virginia and shit. Yeah. So. I've never heard that term before. Oh no. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, whatever. Yeah, it's horseshit. So I think, though, that's important. Yeah. Like, this transition to, quote-unquote, half-assed Christianity, this is this is when we would argue that we start to see the Protestant ethic being separated from the capitalistic ideology. Yeah. And they start to form their own two identities as separate things. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, another different... Uh, well, here's the thing. They, I guess I should mention this. For a lot of these quote-unquote horseshed Christians um, that became economic leaders, they were still forced into what is called a halfway covenant where they could engage in church matters, but they were kept on voting on political matters. That was like one of the last incentives that was 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 thrown out there to try and get more and more people to be devout, if that makes sense. It was kind of like a last gasp. Was so that you couldn't was, vote unless you were full... Full into like being it. Yes. That was kind of the idea. Now, well, again, so even this is like goes into Vapor's idea of the fact that like in the beginning, the, the actual devout capitalists existed on the fringes of society and were never given full status in the beginning. This is exactly that. Well, and then we get more religious separatists rolling up in the 1650s. The Quakers roll in in about 1656. Um, unfortunately for the Puritans, the Puritans didn't, the Quakers didn't get along because the Quakers were a little bit, I hate to say it, too chill. Like, we know that they were, for the most part, predominantly nonviolent in how they engaged with other people. Uh, we also know they had a much more universal worldview um, and allowed a little bit more individuality in people's uh, relationship with God, their spiritual view. Um, they felt that temporal power was useless. They advocated a little bit more for equal rights. I don't want to say they were not patriarchal. They clearly were. But women were involved um, in making choices. And needless to say, the Quakers and their ideology were immediately persecuted by the people of Massachusetts. What, like, How do you get mad at a Quaker? Like, I don't even know how that's a thing. Weber, actually, in the book, has a whole section on Quakers, which is interesting. Yeah, I... You're an asshole. That, that, I mean, that's it. That's how it happens. Uh, the Quakers did form slightly better relationships with First Nations based on this more worldly view. Mm -hmm. um, they certainly had feelings about slavery, which we'll be getting to in, in future episodes. So the Quakers uh, changed the game a little bit because this persecution leads to them moving a little bit further west and basically founding what is now commonly known as the Middle Colonies. So you've got New England, which be, basically becomes uh, 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 established on like lumber, fishing, uh, and mercantilism, eventually like business, and then eventually later on land speculation. And then you have the southern colonies, which are like these cash crops. The middle colonies are going to be 
one of the most important sets of colonies like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, these are going to be important colonies because as the population grows in both the North and the South, these are the colonies, they're going to, they're the breadbasket. They are going to feed those colonies. Not only are they going to feed the other colonies and allow basically the South to focus on cash crops, but they're also going to feed England in all of its uh, colonial exploits. So these middle colonies are going to be uh, basically a giant food bank um, for the English colonial uh, project. They are established by long gra- uh, by land grants um, after uh, the well after Charles II basically gives his brother James of York what he called New Netherland. He basically give without telling the Dutch like that that seems to be the European thing. Like here, I'm Charles II. I'm going to give my brother the James of York New Netherland. Um, and basically, again, you're just giving away land that was Dutch and Native American. Because again, I don't want to say that the Dutch and Native Americans like got along super well, but lesser of two evils. Yeah, the Dutch and Native Americans got along much better than the Native Americans and the English. The English show up with the Navy um, and uh, and basically are forced to give it up. They are intimidated into giving up New Amsterdam. And New Amsterdam is quickly turned into New York. Fort Orange is quickly turned into Albany, which becomes the capital of, of New York State. But yes. Um... And I emphasize that because this really opens up the settlement of the the middle colonies. So New Jersey and Pennsylvania uh, are then established based on a land grant from the James uh, from from the James from James of York uh, to two people. Basically, William Penn is able to arbitrate a land split, and we already know like he's important enough to where one of the colonies is named after him, Pennsylvania. Um, and then Jersey goes on to basically model the colonial plan of New York. Penn then gets a Quaker land grant from King Charles II, um, and King Charles II is cool with this because he finds this as an easy way to settle uh, the disputes between the various Protestant uh, confessions and the Quakers. Basically, this is getting rid of the Quakers, get them the hell out of, 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 of New England, go out there, make your own way in Pennsylvania. This happens in 1681. Now, Pennsylvania is going to develop a little bit differently. Quakers flood in from all of the colonies and other parts of Europe, but all of them are welcome. It's a very different atmosphere in Pennsylvania. Uh, so maybe Philly as the, the city of brotherly love is, is an apt nickname. Um, basically, Philly grows into this very influential center. Um, in fact, I mean, it's, 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 I, I don't have it here, but I guess I'm previewing maybe a future, future episode. By the time we like build up to the, the American War for Independence that we will be doing like maybe three whole episodes on to really get into. But regardless, Philadelphia is the second biggest city in, in, in the British Empire by the time we get to that point. Like it becomes an influential center of commerce in the and British politic- Empire. In the British Holy Empire. Holy shit. I did not know that. Well, because England hasn't firmly established itself in other places yet. Like, it's still not fully in India yet. It's, it's so yes. Like, it was the most, and it was definitely the most populous English city. Yes. Okay. Um, They do have a semi-overbearing government in Philadelphia because the Quakers, of course, do want to maintain control. Um, Again, to ensure that they do not follow the same imperatives or way of doing things that were plaguing uh, Massachusetts at the time. And I should say plaguing socially, certainly not plaguing economically. Massachusetts is growing. Like, it is profitable. That's undeniable. But plaguing them socially. Um, The colonies, as these, the colonies eventually decide, excuse me, let me correct myself. The monarchy eventually decides that the commerce that is taking place in the colonies is important enough to further regulate. All the way back in in in, in the mid-17th century, the profit from New England, the profit from the South, and later on the profit from the Middle Colonies would lead to the creation of what are called the Navigation Acts. 
The Navigation Acts did a number of things. I will not read from this primary source because like all legal acts, at least to me, they're super boring. But the two things I want to emphasize for them uh, from the Navigation Acts are that English goods must be shipped on English vessels. So basically it was a way to ensure almost like a monopoly on the mercantilist uh, system that was taking place at the time. And the other thing is it limits... Who can be granted English citizenship? So, for example, a specific religious minority was stripped of having the ability to be granted English citizenship. Jews were not given English citizenship, which is interesting uh, that we see, again, this this very rich European history of anti-Semitism. But again, that's that's probably for something else. Um, I emphasize this because this will lead to um, some conflict a little bit later because citizenship... Um, depending on who it's granted to, will naturally grant colonists representation in a certain political body back in England known as the House of Commons. And of course, some of those citizens will, vo- will vociferously argue they do not have the right kind of representation. So the idea of represent- no taxation without representation, which I will pick apart in a future episode, isn't as clear-cut as we like to make it in U.S. history. Anyway... Um, some things were not necessarily regulated as heavily. Tobacco was one of the most regulated, of course, being one of the, the most profitable. But wood, fish, and grain were regulated to an extent. Um, basically, the, the idea was that there was a mercantilist, mercantilist relationship established where colonial goods uh, basically became one-fifth of all imported goods uh, back to England. Two-thirds of those were then re-exported to other English colonies, and then finished British goods uh, basically were forced as export upon the colonies. So that may have sounded complex. I'll simplify it. Long story short, natural resources produced in the colonies, sent back to England, turned into finished goods, and then forced back upon the colonized. Uh, colonized if that makes sense. Now, in this case, the colonized are other English citizens, so it's not as, like, abrogating as it would be in during the neo-colonial era of, like, the 19th to 20th century, where the colonized are not, like, citizens also of the colonizing state. So, like, in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, or even today, uh, you know, like, sweatshops in places like, you know, Vietnam or, or Bangladesh or something along those lines, it's, it's a different relationship today. But it was still the same idea, that you're creating these products, you're getting, you're, you're exploiting the natural resources, you're exploiting the labor, uh, in the form of indentured servitude and slavery, you're taking those finished goods back to England, or you're taking the raw materials back to England, producing finished goods, and then forcing the sale of those finished goods, i.e. dependency, upon subject populations. It was wildly profitable. Um, and kind of with that, I think that that's where we're going to kind of close out with... Uh, with New England, at least during this era, I mean, we'll, we'll continue on with New England moving forward, but this kind of establishes New England and what it is about in comparison to our episode on Virginia. Um, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this? I mean, there's a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of shit that I went through. Some of it, like again, regarding how we deal with outsiders or others regarding First Nations or how we deal with the natural world or our economic imperative. Like a lot of the things that we do now can find their roots here. And for a lot of people, that's where they get their sense of pride in, in what we do now. But for me, this is where I see, again, our problematic trajectory of consistent conflict economic or economic ecological degradation um class hierarchy and labor exploitation we also see that during this time period what are, what are your thoughts so many things i think it's super interesting just this clashing of different ideological belief structures amongst different populations different 
economic behaviors in different populations that existed at the time, including the indigenous peoples. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Talking about exploitation, slavery, genocide, and so on, all taking place at this time in the history of the colonies. And like you said, I mean, I, I struggle with people taking pride in this era, like the people that can like, I can trace my ancestors all the way back to like the original settlers that like, to me, that's nothing to be proud of. These were awful, awful people. They did I mean, awful not things. all of them. Let's be right. fair. Like there, there, I gave you a couple that were super like badass. Like Edward Winslow to me was, uh, he was not a perfect man. He was still probably believed in the Protestant work ethic and, and the elect. But he was willing to to bridge gaps. And then Roger Williams, who was willing to work with First Nations and advocate for them so much so that he gets tossed out of uh, Massachusetts for heresy. Um, there's names that I am forgetting right now off the top of my head of other actors that were – oh, there was a Dutch colonizer, uh, Van Curler. He is an excellent example of a man that was able to establish bonds with others to, that, that, that mutually benefited different groups of people. Um, so not – I don't. I don't want to make the blanket statement that every one of these 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 colonists was awful, but the fact that the the it is the awful ones that eventually went out says something. I mean, yeah, it's the awful ones that rise to power for sure in the end. Yeah, which it was no surprise to anyone ever, right? This is what happens throughout all of history. I think it's just it. I don't know. It just bothers me to think of like this is the history that we don't like to look in the face because it makes us uncomfortable. And we realize that if we actually admit that this is who we are and this is where we came from, not everyone in the country, obviously, but this is the foundation of the country, then we have to look in the mirror and realize that this is why we are the way that we are right now. And there's, and I mean, there's so many, like, uh, whatever, so many things, anything that you can think of that is a problem, a social issue today in America, we can link back to this era. Why do we have police brutality? Well, I already talked about it in the Invention of Whiteness episode. That's exactly why. Why do we have economic exploitation and the othering of people? It's exactly this period. I mean, there's no surprise, but we don't want to look at We're founded on it. Like, exactly. you cannot, like, like, we're founded on these ideals. And so what we're trying to do is get a tiger to change its stripes, right? When we voice our concerns with this. The tiger's not going to change their stripes. You're going to have to maybe look for a different tiger. And like we oh, said, the me, reason... A cat. You're going to need to look for a lion or a leopard or a puma. <laughs> no. The reason that we're doing this is not just so we can tell history. Like, that's so boring. No one cares about that. It's because I think we both believe that we have to look this history in the face, realize that this is the origins of our country. And if we're ever going to get somewhere positive, that's not going to take thousands of years to just come to fruition, we're going to have to admit to all of this, look it straight in the face, draw a line in the sand and move on. And correct the ills of the past. Yes. Yes. Whatever that means. Reparations, apologies. I, I don't know what that looks like anymore. You, you can't bring millions of indigenous people back from, from, from basically like, you know, not living. Like I, I don't, I don't even know what term to use at this point. You cannot undo the fact that, that slavery occurred. You can't undo the fact that, that women's voices were suppressed for the vast majority, uh, of the nation's history. Um, what you can do is seek to correct those things from continuing to happen and at least acknowledge in all of their graphic detail that they happened. And I, we still refuse to do that. I mean, step one is knowing. Yeah. Step two is acknowledging. And then step three, like we need to have real life conversations about how we fix those things so that we can have a better future for everyone 
in the country. We make other people do it. I mean, how long was Germany forced to pay reparations yeah. uh, once Israel was established as a state? We make other nations do it for their crimes of the past, but yet we are too good to do so? That makes no sense. Yeah, straight up. I don't even know what to add to that. I, it's, it's, There's so many what ifs too, man. Like yeah. that that King Philip or the, the Phillips War thing that really gets me. Like, what if? What if the Mohawk Mohawk had not turned? Like, it'd be completely different. And other people are like, well, then we wouldn't be here. And I'm like, yeah, it's just, uh, maybe not. But like, what would be, it might be better? Who knows? Maybe we come along in a different way, shape, or form. But yeah, we have like, to get, like existential. On yeah, that. then yeah. we have to get existential. But like again, <laughs> when I do, I mean, it's gonna be the same thing when I do uh, Tecumseh later on again in his rebellion. And what if it had gone differently? And you know, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, um, I think that's a wrap on this episode. So um, yeah, let's do it. Uh, again, you've been listening to the Revolution and Ideology podcast series called Myth Is America. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Later.